Uh, would you bow with me? We're going to start into Daniel chapter 9, and I, I just want to ask the Lord, uh, ask his spirit to make his word clear in, in our hearts, uh, relevant to our lives, and would show us how it is that the spirit is prompting us to respond to what we hear today. Daniel chapter 9, would you bow with me as we begin in prayer? Lord, Daniel 9 is, is a chapter that often brings more questions than answers, and so we want to come before your word with an appropriate amount of humility, Lord, wanting to be spoken to by you uh, through your word. So help us to hold loosely uh, to the things that we may uh, bring in to this text and help us to have our hands open for what you would uh, share with us today. Uh, Lord, we, we never want the study of your word to be purely academic. We never want it to just be informational. Lord, we want it to be transformational. And so we would ask that your spirit would do that work so that as we uh, approach the text today, as we have questions that, that come with this great passage, that there would be a intellectual curiosity, uh, but ultimately a spiritual and a discipleship-oriented and a transformational-minded uh, curiosity where, where we say, Lord, how does your word light my path? Lord, would you make that clear to us today? In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that we're going to see from Daniel chapter 9 is that we have a God who does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's actually a really, really good thing because as most of you know, our lives are much better off in God's hands than in our own. And sometimes it takes us a while to get that, but our lives are much better off in his hands than they are in our own one of the things that made that clear to me was teaching our kids how to ride their bicycles. And so they needed me to go behind them and hold on to the back of their seat to keep them stable, right? They couldn't pedal fast enough. They didn't know how to pedal, so they couldn't get enough momentum. So I had to hold the back of the seat just to keep them upright. They didn't know how to control their, their body weight. They would look at something over here and veer into the bushes. And so they needed me to hold to the back of that seat to keep them going straight so they could learn to pedal and learn to control their body. When Ian would get scared, he would just stop pedaling. And so if I wasn't holding on, he would stop pedaling and fall. So he needed me again to hold that seat firmly so that when he got scared, he could learn to pedal through the fear. My daughter, Rochelle, when she gets scared, she just puts her feet down. And so it's nice because she didn't fall, uh, but she needed me to hold firmly onto that seat so that when she got scared and put her feet down, I could keep her going. I could say, you can do it. Keep pedaling. Don't stop. Keep going. You see, I could do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. Ironically, every time they fall, fell, they blame me. And so I don't know how that works. I'm literally the only thing between the asphalt and their face, but it was my fault every single time uh, they fell. I think it parallels that we often uh, point the finger at God every time we fall. We point the finger at God every time our circumstances go in a way that we don't like, that we don't approve of, that is not of our choosing, when at the end of the day, he is the only one who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He is the only one who can hold firmly on our life, keep us steady, keep us going. And we're going to see uh, the Lord come to Daniel through the angel Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9 and be that steadying, stable 
force. Essentially to say, Daniel, this is what's coming. I've got it. Keep going. This is what's coming. I've got it. Keep going. If you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 9. Uh, the first point today is, is we're going to see that, that God is near in our darkness. And I say darkness because, again, the setting is Daniel in exile. He's not getting younger and he's not getting out. So he's about 85 years old now. Things have not worked out for Daniel like he had hoped. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you look at where your adult son or daughter is or is not. Maybe you look back on your career that wasn't, your family that isn't. And you think, how did I get here? Things haven't worked out like I had hoped. Daniel is surrounded by disappointment. They're now in their second uh, captivity in the sense of the second kingdom that they've been subservient to in exile. And no one's turning to follow God. They haven't learned their lesson. There's not widespread repentance and obedience. They're still continuing in their wicked ways, despite the fact that the consequences seem to be getting worse and worse. He's surrounded by disappointment. Can you relate to that at all? Maybe you look back at your own life, your own choices, choices of those you love, and, and, and you're disappointed in, in what you did or, or what you've become, or the sin that still ensnares you. Daniel probably has some sort of, some sense of resignation. He has lived a faithful life, but he can't do for himself what he most wants for himself or his people. He can't get them out of exile. He's powerless to fix their situation. Do you feel powerless? Powerless in the tide of an increasingly anti-Christian culture. Powerless even in your own life, in your, with your own sin. Powerless uh, with your family. Uh, to do for a loved one what you s- would so love to be able to do for them, a choice that you would like to make for them that you can't, that they have to make. We see that God is near to Daniel in Daniel's darkness. And interestingly enough, in this spot where we usually run from God, we see Daniel running to God. Daniel is searching the scriptures in Daniel chapter 9 at the beginning of the text. Um, we find that that's what he's doing. He's searching the scriptures. And so my question for you this morning is, Daniel in his darkness turns to the Lord, to his revealed word, the revealed word that reveals God. Daniel turns to the Lord, believing that this is where the answers are. Do you believe that that this is where the answers are for life? John uh, 20 says these things were written that you might believe and that you may have life. Uh, The psalmist in Psalms 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It guides my path. Do we believe those things are true? Do we believe that that that's really what exists here? Light for our path. Words to believing. Words to life. It's hard, isn't it, to to see God at work when we're distant from his word. It's hard to see him at work in our lives and around us when we're distant uh, from his word. Uh, And it's got to be firsthand. Uh, It's great to listen to sermons. It's great to listen to teaching. It's great to read devotional books. It's great to read uh, books by Christian authors. All of those are useful. But at some point, it's got to be firsthand, doesn't it? At some point, it's got to be firsthand. When it's not firsthand, what we discover is is we might know a lot about God, 
but we might discover that we really don't know God. We might understand that he speaks to some, but we may have never heard him speak for ourselves. We may understand how he works and that he does work in people's lives. And we've seen him work in other people's lives, but maybe we haven't seen him work in our own. It's got to be firsthand. We've got to be students of his word, students of the word that reveals our father. It kind of is like a, if you've ever been set up on a blind date, it's a terrifying and terrible experience and it shouldn't ever happen, but it is useful sometimes. And so it does. And essentially what you have is uh, someone who, who knows you and knows someone else says, this could be a good thing. And so people love to be matchmakers. Uh, we probably have plenty of them here. Every one of you knows someone who prides themselves in being a good matchmaker. But a matchmaker says, this girl and this guy, they would go great together, so they try to organize it. And if you're the person being set up on the, the blind date, this person that you know, presumably maybe like and maybe trust, is going to tell you about this girl. And they're going to say, Uh, She's wonderful. She's lovely. She has all of the same interests as you. You're going to think that she's beautiful. She's so smart. She loves the Lord. They're going to tell you all of these things about her. Um, And in the history of blind dates, has anyone showed up based on the word of a friend with an engagement ring? Has anyone showed up to a blind date based on the word of a friend and said, this is it. Um, Call off the dogs. I'm done. I can't wait for this dinner to happen. This is going to be so wonderful. I wonder where we should plan our honeymoon to. Uh, This is going to be great. I'm thinking three kids, uh, maybe give it four or five years first, and then kids. Uh, No, you got to meet the girl for yourself, right? You got to Talk to her face-to-face yourself. You've you got to see her with your own two eyes. You've got to have this conversation and say, yeah, our, our personalities really do click. Yeah, we really do enjoy some of the th- same things. Yes, you really do uh, love the Lord. I've got to see that with my own eyes. It's got to be one-to-one. It's not just the words of a friend. Now, the words of a friend might get me to the dinner, but it's got to be personal. It's got to be one-to-one. It's got to be with my own eyes. And if the date goes well, you want another one, right? If the date goes well, you, you, want, you want another one. And, and you might be really busy, but you will make time for another one. Remember some of the things that maybe you did when you were first dating. I, I remember talking to Nicole for almost three hours. I was in Washington. She was in California. There was two feet of snow, and I was standing on the deck of our house outside, not in the snow, but outside, because inside were my brothers and my family, and that's just not a environment conducive to uh, talking with a girl that I'm really interested in. Uh, but this, the cold didn't bother me. I would have gone and sat in the snow for two and a half hours. I wanted to talk to her. When your affections are stirred for someone, you'll do anything, right, to spend more time with that person. When our affections are stirred for the Lord, we'll do anything to spend more time with the Lord. It's got to happen on this one-on-one. We've got to learn to to search the scriptures for Uh, ourselves. That's what happens when we dig into his word. If you want your affections to be stirred for the Lord, you've got to be a student of his word, ultimately a student of the God that the word reveals. And so Daniel in his darkness is a student of the word, a lover of God, a lover of the word that reveals God. And, and we shouldn't be surprised, should we? The second point is God reveals himself in our despair. God was near to Daniel in his darkness. God revealed himself to Daniel in Daniel's despair through his written word. This is what Daniel reads. He reads that the length 
of exile is going to be 70 years. And Daniel, at this point, has been in exile almost 70 years. We get that from Jeremiah 29, verse 10. I'll read it to you. Uh, This is what we understand that Daniel was reading at this moment. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Daniel's sitting there after almost 70 years of exile, reads Jeremiah 29, 10 and goes, oh shoot, this is, we're almost there. This is almost it. This despair, this, this hopelessness, this resignation, this discouragement, we're almost there. I really believe if we are students of the word of God, we will hear from the Lord on a regular basis from his word, him guiding, him leading, him directing, him comforting, him encouraging, him pricking our hearts, convicting our hearts of sin. No surprise, Daniel is a student of the word and he hears from the Lord. And when Daniel encounters God, Daniel understands that none of this difficulty, none of his circumstances, none of the exiles outside of the power of God. And so he is broken to the core. He is broken to the core. And we read about that in the next few verses. When you come face to face with the Lord, when you're broken to the core, you don't make demands of God, right? You never feel entitled when you see his power and your powerlessness, when you see his faithfulness and your faithlessness. This is what Daniel 4 and 5 say. This is just part of chapter 9 of Daniel's response to the Lord as he's broken. And he says in verse 4, he said, I prayed to the Lord my God and I made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He says, Daniel says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. You see, when you see God, when you hear from the Lord, you see your own sin much more clearly. You see your own sin much more clearly. Daniel says, we've acted wickedly and turned from your instruction. Verse 6, he says, we have ignored your prophets. Verse 12 and verse 13, uh, he says, you have spoken to us You have brought about punishment for our sin, and we haven't learned a thing. Uh, Here's Daniel 9, verse 13, as Daniel says, we haven't learned anything. Daniel says, as it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Daniel says, we have have forgotten the past. We have forgotten what you have said. We have ignored it. We have not learned from your prophets, we have not learned from your truth. We have not learned even from the consequences that you have brought upon us. When we fail to consider his word, we forget our past and we fail to consider the Lord's kindness to us. And it's in this moment that we're reminded that God loves us even when we are most unloving. God loves us even when we are most unloving. God loves his chosen people even when they turned their back on him. God loves us even when we are most unloving. Now what's really cool is at this point, Daniel doesn't say, God, I'm trying. 
come on. Daniel doesn't say, look, I have lived pretty faithfully. Uh, Show favor to your faithful servant and bless us. Daniel is just going to appeal to the mercy of God. Daniel is going to say, God, this is your character. You are merciful. You are righteous. You are patient. Would you be merciful and righteous and patient towards us? Daniel's going to say, God, you said after 70 years, you were going to bring us back. I realize we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. Would you do what you said for your name's sake? Uh, Pick it up. Verses 15, 16 of chapter 9. This is Daniel's plea to the Lord. Verse 15 says, And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day we have sinned. That, that might be my favorite line in the, in the whole chapter. As it is this day we have sinned. We blew it then. And we've blown it again. And you might even just read in there, we're probably going to blow it again and again and again. He says, as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all of your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from the city of Jerusalem. Not that it's not deserved. Not that they haven't earned it. Let your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. And then the last part of verse 18. Daniel says, For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy, O Lord. We do not present our pleas because of our great righteousness, but because of your great mercy. We see that Daniel recognizes that God alone can do for his people what they cannot do for themselves. He's reminded of God's covenantal faithfulness, that he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, not because they were worthy of being rescued, not because they deserved his favor, but because he told Abraham that he would, but because he told Moses that he would, but because because ultimately it is God that is going to get the glory as he rescues his people in spite of his people's unworthiness of his rescuing. One of the things that we see in Scripture is that we see we are much, much worse off than we realize and that God's love and patience and mercy to us is much, much greater than we understand. Second uh, Chronicles is an interesting passage. Second Chronicles 36, it actually uh, talks about this 70 years of captivity and essentially says the reason that they were in captivity for 70 years is because for the last 490 years they had not honored the Lord. And so one of the things in the Old Testament law is that every seventh year uh, the p- nation of Israel was supposed to essentially give that year to the Lord. And there was special instruction for how they do that. So every seven years, they, they owed the Lord one. And what Second Chronicles tells us is that for 490 years, they didn't give that year to the Lord. And so it would be much more than they just forgot about that year. It was an evidence, it was an indicator that their hearts had turned away from him. Here's what Second Chronicles 36.20 says. He took into exile in Babylon... He being the Lord, 
those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land has enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days that it lay desolate. It kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Isn't it neat to see the way that Scripture is consistent from, from cover to cover and we read about uh, prophecy that is happening in front of our eyes here in Daniel and we understand that God's people had turned their back on him for 490 years and because God is so precise, because God is so masterful in his sovereignty over the affairs of humanity, uh, the nation of Israel, Jerusalem, is going to sit barren for 70 years in a sense God is going to get what is owed to him, whether his people give it to him or not. As Daniel realizes that his people, that he, that they have failed again, just like their ancestors uh, said, he pleads out to the Lord. He calls out to the Lord. He says, O Lord, heal. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Oh, Lord, he says, don't delay, I think in verse 19, for your name's sake. Uh, and what we see here is that the Lord heard Daniel's cry. The text is actually going to say that the moment of Daniel's plea, a word went out. Let's read verses 19 or 20 through 23 uh, that record uh, the Lord's response through the angel Gabriel to Daniel's plea. 20 through 23 of Daniel 9. Says, Daniel says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in a swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. The beginning of your plea for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Gabriel is one of two angels mentioned in Scripture. Gabriel does not show up often. In Luke, Gabriel shows up to tell Mary that she's going to have a son. That's big news. Gabriel shows up to tell Zechariah that he and his wife are going to have a son. They're going to name him John, and he's going to uh, precede the Messiah and prepare the way for the Messiah. That's big news. And here in Daniel, he's big time. He just shows up when there's heavy lifting to do, God sends Gabriel at this moment to speak into Daniel's circumstances and then to do something uh, incredible and paint Daniel a picture uh, of the future to remind Daniel that God's got this, everything that Daniel sees around him, and God's got this on a much grander scale. And so I just, I just want to ask you do, you, do you know and do you believe that God hears the cries of your heart? Do you know and believe in despair and discouragement and resignation that the Lord hears the cries of your heart? Sometimes we don't see movement. Sometimes we don't see movement and we believe that, that God is inactive. Uh, 
sometimes we don't see things materializing the way that we want and we think that he's powerless. Don't mislabel a uh, lack of movement for inactivity. God hears the cries of Daniel's heart and he sends the angel Gabriel. Um, and then he delivers this encouragement, t- verses 24 through 27. And, and as I read it, I wouldn't blame you if you said, that's encouraging. <laughs> um, verse, verses 24 through 27 are, are some of the uh, most controversial verses in the Bible. Uh, if you do want to do a Google search this afternoon, uh, you can find as many points of view as probably web pages uh, on the 70th week that's going to be described here on Daniel chapter 9 as a whole on this 70-week uh, period that's described. So let me just read uh, the text. I would like to share a couple different ways uh, that theologians and scholars have gone about to try to make sense of Gabriel's message. Um, and then maybe share what I think is uh, the better of a few options. Uh, and then we'll, we'll finish with, so what does it mean? How is this encouraging to Daniel? How is it encouraging uh, to us? What we see, though, is that God is our source of hope in the present, and God is our source of hope in the future. God is our source of hope in the present, and God is the source of hope in the future. Uh, read with me if you have Daniel 9, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed, this is the angel Gabriel, seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring into everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again, talking about Jerusalem, with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, the temple. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. It seems like if Gabriel wanted to encourage Daniel, he could have just said, hey, Daniel, it's going to be about six more months. might have been a simpler uh, way to go about it, but we see that... uh, that Daniel is one loved by God. Uh, description also for John, uh, the Apostle John. John is given a, a great revelation of the future, the book of Revelation. Uh, Daniel, one loved by God, is given a revelation of the future as well. So uh, here's a couple different ways that people uh, come at verses 24 through 27. Generally, most agree that when the Bible talks about 70 weeks here, the literal construction of the Hebrew is 70 sevens, 70 clusters of seven. And so virtually well, all of the interpretations that I read as I was weighing them against each other 
take that to mean 70 groups of seven years for a total of 490 years. Now, the first verse, verse 24, says all of these really incredible things are going to happen at the end of this time. The atonement for sin, that means a covering for sin. It's going to be dealt with actually bringing about the end of sin. And the verse says ushering in everlasting righteousness. Uh, It says the prophet and the prophecy will be sealed. Sealed like a king's ring authenticates that it was the king's word, that it was the king's um, command that made it so, that it's going to be validated, that it's going to be seen as, um, as right and as true, as from the Lord. All of these things are going to happen at the end of this 70 week period described by Gabriel to Daniel. The breakdown is into three then subgroups. You have the first seven, or you have seven sevens, then you have 62 sevens, then you have the last one, a 70th seven. And so uh, if you go online this afternoon and and you you look what different uh, theologians or different pastors have said or have studied or have recorded, um, one of the camps is going to be a very literal interpretation that is going to say what Gabriel delivered to Daniel was a history of essentially the next 490 years that more or less begins when the issue to rebuild Jerusalem is given and ends with Jesus' life, the triumphal entry, his death, essentially with the earthly ministry of Jesus. And so that's that's one way to look at it. It's a series of a consecutive 490 weeks and no breaks, no pauses, uh, no nothing. And if you want to come at it from a very literal uh, translation, that would be a conclusion that you could come to. If someone were going to poke holes in that point of view a little bit, they might say, well, what about the 70th week? If all of this concluded during Jesus' earthly ministry or at the time of his triumphal entry or death or resurrection, What about the 70th week? The 70th week is prominent throughout Scripture and seems to be a time of great terror, great tribulation, such that the world has never been seen. Where was that? Uh, And so that would be one uh, hole that that someone might poke uh, in that. Um, They also might uh, look to some other Scriptures and say, well, Jesus in Matthew 24 tells his listeners to be looking for the abomination of desolation, to be looking for this thing spoken of in the book of Daniel. And Jesus says, it's going to happen. So this thing that Daniel is referencing seems to be still future uh, at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so for that reason, some have said, it can't be 490 consecutive years without interruption it seems like there's got to be a different solution. And so um, with that literal interpretation, there's a a bunch of ways to understand it, and there's a bunch of dates where uh, various rulers decree or allow the Israelites to go back and rebuild. Cyrus is going to do it in the late 530s. Artaxerxes is going to do it a couple times at like 445 and 458 uh, BC. So you can get the numbers, the 490 years, to sort of work out. Um, And and that's just a fascinating study in and of itself. Um, There are many variations within that camp, but I would say that's just kind of a nutshell uh, of 
taking it as 490 literal chronological years without interruption. Um, another significant way to approach this is to see that the first 69 sevens uh, are completed with the life of Jesus and that there is one seventh one seven remaining. And, and the reason someone might land there is they might look at all the things written about in verses 24 and say, everlasting righteousness, an end to sin, uh, that the temple will be restored for worship. That really sounds like the second coming of Jesus. That really sounds like the end times. Um, if you're in this uh, camp, you'll read verses 25 and 26 where it says uh, this anointed one is cut off. Uh, and, and it appears that uh, as the anointed one is cut off, there's an interruption. There's a break in the action such that as Gabriel is giving this to Daniel, he's describing major significant movements of the Lord, not necessarily movements that are exhaustive in their description, not necessarily movements that are um, continuous uh, in their work. In other words, that there's some things that have been left out of this description that Gabriel has given to Daniel. And so many will see a break in between the 69th and the 70th week. And if you look at the 70th week in Daniel chapter 9, it says, uh, and he, referring to an Antichrist figure, shall make strong, a strong covenant with many for a week. In other words, he's going to bring peace. He's going to bring people together. This is what you see when you read about the deception uh, throughout the, the Bible. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of that week, he shall put an end to the sacrifice and the offering. In other words, he will make it, he will outlaw the worship of God. He will set himself up in opposition to God. Now, we've seen that, haven't we? Uh, throughout the book of Daniel, whenever the Antichrist figure is mentioned, uh, he is setting himself up in opposition to God. And it says, on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out, and it describes that period of time as uh, half of a week or half of a seven. Uh, And so as we're looking at these sevens as clusters of seven years, essentially that would be three and a half years. Now, there's at least three or four places in Scripture that mention this period. I'll read one, uh, Revelation 13.5, that would seem to support that this half of week or this three and a half year period matches what we read about as the great tribulation, as the events immediately preceding the return of Jesus. This is Revelation 13:5. It says, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, right? That's, that's against God. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months or three and a half years. If we turn back to Daniel 7, as well, we'll see the description of the beast of the Antichrist being allowed to rule for a time, uh, times, and a half a time. And so we see that again, that three and a half year uh, designation being really significant, being prominent to our understanding of the seven years that precede the return of Jesus, Jesus' second coming. Uh, we understand from Daniel also that it will be a quick battle, right? Uh, The beast and Jesus are not going to duke it out for 10 rounds. 
Uh, they're not going to go back and forth, you know, like a movie where uh, the hero's up and then the hero's down and the hero gets a second wind and then comes back and, and saves the day that this is going to be quick, right? We saw the stone, I think, in Daniel chapter 2 that hurled at the statue and it, and it crumbled and it was, it was quick. It was severe. Uh, it was sudden. It was final. Revelation 19.20 Uh, captures this saying, and the beast was captured with it, the false prophet who in his presence had done signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. Again, there's the deception and also worshiping of that image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire uh, that burns with sulfur. I realize there are a number of questions I have not answered about this period of time. Um, and I would love to talk with any of you over lunch or over coffee or even in the lobby. Uh, it's, it's fascinating, and there is uh, almost an infinite amount of, of Scripture that you can go to and say, well, what about this? This is really interesting. And my answer to you is yes. It, it, it is interesting, and it's fascinating. Um, and so I guess in a nutshell, uh, you can see it as 490 years uh, sequentially that happened one right after another, uh, some shortcomings would be that it doesn't seem to do justice to the angel Gabriel coming uh, to the 70th week and the significance of the 70th week and the great tribulation in Scripture uh, or justice to all of the remarkable things that are promised in verse 24. Essentially, the end of sin, the end of pain, the end of suffering, all things being made new, not by man's own doing, but by the work of God uh, through Jesus. Or you can see a gap between 69 and 70. And there are more views than these, but these are kind of the most prominent, at least as I understand. Uh, And to say that those first 69 ended with Jesus. And when the Messiah was cut off, as told about in verses 25 and 26, that really there was a a cutoff of focus, a cutoff of power, uh, a cutoff of his work. And one of the ways that we understand that is prior to this point, the focus of the Lord was on the Jews, not to the exclusion of the Gentiles, but focus on the Jews. And then what do we see in the book of Acts? It flips, right? Jesus ascends into heaven, and now the focus is really on the Gentiles, not to the exclusion of the Jews, but a focus on the Gentiles. And so we're going to see in, I think it's Romans 11, uh, where Paul talks about there will be another gathering of the Jews at the end time. And so throughout the New Testament, we see... Jesus, we see Paul, and we see others talk about the end time uh, with future things to come. The gathering of the Jews, um, the great tribulation, the deception of the Antichrist, the pain and suffering uh, for God's people, but ultimately the return and the rule and the reign of Christ, him making all things new, him doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now, Regardless of where you come down on, on some of these things, uh, here's just a few takeaways. Uh, Gabriel's words to Daniel point to the Messiah. Gabriel's words to Daniel point to uh, the Messiah, that he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we understand that in Jesus, making salvation possible. What we can't do for ourselves, Jesus makes possible for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And then ultimately to save us and to seal us and hold us until his return. Uh, Another takeaway, regardless of how you interpret uh, the words of Gabriel in Daniel chapter 9, 
the future doesn't look good for God's people, right? There's significant pain and suffering ahead. And so, but what we're reminded though is that the future is much, much, much worse for those who oppose God and oppose his people. The pain and suffering for God's people is short in comparison. The pain and suffering for God's people is minimal in comparison. Then last, um, there's a call on each of us, of each follower of Christ, to be prepared, right? To be ready, uh, to be anticipating uh, his return. To stand firm, that when we see these things happening, to not give up hope. That when we see these things happening, to not despair, but rather to be reminded, as Daniel must have been in this moment. Oh my goodness, God is over all of this, and it comes into clearer focus when we see the events prophesied about start to play out in our lives. And so if you're someone who loves to read the news and loves to see the shifting and the jockeying of nations and of power, I would say rather than uh, have a spirit of fear, rather than have a, a spirit of despair, that as you see things that start to line up, that point to order, that point to Uh, hostility towards Christians and suffering for Christians, in our hearts we might be uh, affirmed, that we might be encouraged that exactly what God said is starting to play out in front of us. That we would remind it, as Daniel was, that, that this is our future, that it has been decreed, and that God's got this. That ultimately, he's the only one who can do for us what we can never do for ourselves. In Job 12, uh, verse 10, uh, Job responds to one of his friends and he says, uh, my life is in the Lord's hands. Our lives are in the Lord's hands. The very breath that comes out is in the Lord's hands. And just we're just reminded clearly in this text that our lives are in the Lord's hands. Wherever your despair, discouragement, uh, resignation, whatever way you can relate to Daniel, I hope you see and hear from the text this morning. That our lives are in the Lord's hands and our future is secure. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that it doesn't sugarcoat anything. We thank you that it doesn't um, overpromise and underdeliver. Lord, it underpromises and overdelivers. Lord, that you are faithful over and over. We thank you that. You were near Daniel in his darkness. Lord, that you revealed yourself in his despair through your word. Lord, that you loved him. You loved your people in spite of their lack of faithfulness. And that encourages us that you love us in spite of our our setbacks, in spite of our shortcomings. Lord, we thank you that you are our hope now and you are our hope for our future. Would you show us, Lord, how to put our hope in you. Lord, may we be students of your word, students of the one your word reveals. Lord, that we would believe in our whole hearts that your word is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, a light to our path. Lord, that these things were written that we might know that we might have life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.